0: Hello oh, and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth.
1: And I am Ian Dunt. I am a heathen, pagan, who wrote How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. And I'm a columnist for the i newspaper.
0: This week, we are talking about atheism. Ian, I think maybe we should start on a more personal note than normal. What is your story of belief? or lack thereof
1: uh not good so i I had a sort of this sounds so insanely pompous and preposterous but when i was 13 years old i sort of basically had like a complete existential collapse of like. and i think i wonder whether this is more common than we say i know it sounds pretentious but it is just what's happened and i remember the sort of moment i think as you sort of emerge out of childhood to sort of like try to look over the horizon and the question is you know very quickly like What's the fucking point? You know what? What is the point of all this stuff? And then once you've got the sort of intellectual capacity to ask that question, I got very, very depressed, like quite alarmingly so, and ran straight into the arms of sort of evangelical Christianity. Really, of these sort of you know these they have these sort of summer camps. they wow. take you out, you do archery, or whatever, and, and it's quite fun, right. You're meeting sort of girls for the first, you know, it's like a the place that you want to be, but they make sure that they take you for these wars. archery
0: and girls are definitely the main appeals <laughs> of organized right. religion. <laughs> I can see. They go very strong on that. <laughs> Those guys knew
1: exactly what they were doing. No. Like, so they take you for these walks and it's the whole, you know, Jesus loves you. It was very attractive. But most importantly, it just gives you a depository for all these early emotions right, of okay. what's the point. And that probably lasted for me for about two, three years and quite strong stuff from me. I mean, I, you know, I can think back to stuff I said there or thought, you know, that non-believers would go to. I really was, oh, it's pretty far out. I had there. No idea. And once that fell apart and it eventually did fall apart. Sort of all of it, I think, just went towards sort of like socialism and communism, you know, political, sort of really heavy left political campaigning. Right. And I think that was really just the same sort of existential depository that I had for religion. And now the place that I find myself is sort of like, I mean, I just think it's an absolute load of gibberish. I am quite militant against it and think it is a a force that damages people. But I hope, and over the course of this we'll describe, that I I do at least recognize the elements of things socially that it does, which can be quite healthy.
0: Okay. Okay. So I was like baptized Catholic. Three of my grandparents were Catholic. One was Jewish. So I was sort of exposed to some of the rituals of both of those when I was younger. And then broadly C of E. I think my dad, I now realized through doing this research was probably a deist.
1: <laughs> believes did he, did this, he not talk about that much in the kitchen? Well, he believes
0: there's sort of something up there, but not a kind of you know interventionist, right. surveillance heavy God. And this so my mum was very sort of, you know, very kind of loosely yeah, she's sort of of a my sister's more Christian than that, and I just didn't like going to church a lot, and I just didn't like it, and I didn't connect with it, and I was very, very bored. A lot of people are bored in church, but mm. I think part of the reason I was bored was because I didn't really believe in it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you strip away the fact that you're actually <laughs> addressing somebody, or that these these hymns are about something, you know, then it's simply the ritual which I did not enjoy. And I went through a very kind of weird phase of about a year where I tried to convince myself as a Wiccan. So when I went to university, I uh, read Camus, The Myth of Sisyphus classic sort of existentialist text, um, which I just reread. And it's really quite, you know, it's quite dense and abstract. I don't remember. It doesn't seem like the sort of book that would just kind of like knock your socks off. Mm. But then there's this one bit which I thought, oh, maybe this is what I connected with. Where he says, I don't know whether this world has a meaning that transcends it, but I know that I do not know that meaning and that it is impossible for me just now to know it. What can a meaning outside my condition mean to me? I can understand only in human terms. mm mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a kind of it was sort of pragmatic atheism. And we'll talk a little bit later about atheism versus agnosticism. But for me, I felt like there was no point. I know people think there's more humility in agnosticism, and atheism is sort of arrogantly, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that they're believing that there's no god. Mm-hmm. But I see no reason to almost like keep those options. Open? Do I have to keep them open just to Christianity? Do I keep them open to Judaism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Mm. whatever, like how am I meant to keep an open mind about like possibly all of the religions and Mm. even religions that people invent? Should I be open minded about Mormonism or Mm. or whatever? (laughs) So it doesn't make any sense to me. And in terms of how I live my life, like I might as well be an atheist, I might as well have that sort of certainty. Uh, Because in many other political areas, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm even, oh, it's a bit more complicated than you think. You know, and I quite like the fact that there's this sort of clarity. But, and we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to do sort of a a sort of brief history of atheism. And then in the final bit, we're going to talk about the new atheism. We've read books by Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, we're going to discuss that. And I think that I found something quite sort of obnoxious and and, and, and arrogant and hostile about that whole movement, which made me stop talking about atheism. I didn't really describe myself. It wasn't like a big thing for me, but-
1: But if you were asked, you would have used the word, right? It was just that it wasn't a sort of front facing- Yeah, it wasn't
0: just because I was just like, I don't want to be associated Mm -hmm. with that very sort of aggressive. Sort of stance, but then things happen, you know. The, it really clarified, and in fact, doing all this reading clarified like how much of a, an atheist I am. But the two things that happened recently was the attack on Salman Rushdie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just reminding me of all my feelings about the about the Rushdie affair and about the idea that you know you inflict physical violence on someone for a book yeah. that has offended your religion, and how just so, so clear cut that is for me. And then the other thing was Kate Forbes running for SMP. Mm-hmm. Leader and how huh. it was sort of like, it was trying to present Christianity as almost this sort of minority group and that we should be fair to her. And the argument seemed to be, it's okay if she's leader because she can't do anything. <laughs> she can't <laughs> act on her beliefs because all of this stuff is, is is established. She can't roll back abortion rights. Mm-hmm. She can't roll back gay rights. But it was like, But she'd like to. (laughs) You know, so what is the idea? It's not
1: irrelevant. No,
0: so it's like, so it's okay for her to have these very fundamentalist Christian beliefs because she can't do anything about them. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but if she could, like in another context, like this could be like a, you know, theocracy. These rights would be rolled back because that's what she believes. And I thought the idea that this was just like, it's just a thing that she's into. And I felt, no, I, I really, I, 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 deeply fundamentally oppose, you know, basically these fundamentalist Christian views on people's rights. Can I tell you a couple of
1: sort of stories that sort of stick in my head from my stuff is one of them was, I remember being in uh, Portugal in Lisbon and we went to go see this sort of cathedral and we're at the back during the service. And this guy came in, he just looked like, I mean, he was almost dressed in rags. I mean, he, you know, he he looked like, well, I suppose like a refugee, I have no idea, but like very, very poor and looked very lonely. And he was sat next to this sort of really quite well-to-do bourgeois looking woman. And then at the end of the sort of ceremony, right, in the Catholic thing, they have this bit where you hug the person next to you. And they stood up and, and they hugged. And I was quite affected by the hug. I sort of felt like there's nothing that humanists or atheists or whatever offer that give... What, that, that guy got a hug and a hug is not nothing. Mm. Like a hug means something mm. in particular moments of your life, that sense of community that it can offer. And I remember feeling not jealous of it exactly, but realizing that there's something that we have always failed on the other side to offer people to replace it with in the material world. Yeah. The other was when my uncle died a few years ago. And I think you can become like the thing that I've just said, there's almost a kind of C of E privilege, right? When you live in this country. Uh, religion just doesn't ask anything of you right okay. it just is used really easy to ignore when they come on you know it's justin welby you know in the house of lords talking about refugees it's all quite nice you know what i mean you mostly agree with them you can light sort of a candle in a
0: church if that was something that <laughs> meant something to yeah. your
1: relative or whatever right yeah exactly yeah nice bits and then, so my uncle died. This is the you know my Latin American family were living in America. And, and he was always an atheist all of his life um, and had quite a big influence on me oh. and on my mom. And the family had just sort of, um, you know, certain people around. They just sort of basically pressurized his wife and saying, well, he should have a Catholic funeral. Basically for a kind of shoddy Pascal's wager thing of like, well, if it's not true, it doesn't matter. But if it yeah, is yeah. true, we get him into heaven, right? And I remember just going to this, to this ceremony and I hated it. So I felt like they just come in and just whitewashed over, it. like these guys just get to just come in and just like stamp Catholicism right. at the end of his life and just sort of, you know, there's no content about him. And, and I, it sent me into this spasm of anti-religious fury that lasted for like two years, you know, really Christopher Hitchens, you know, I was watching Christopher Hitchens videos, you right. know, I'm really satisfied by them. And like in those two stories, I feel like my kind of jumbled modern life yeah. exists of bouncing around these two various states on, on this on this topic.
0: So, we should say uh, before we start that we are talking about atheism in a Western context, and that in india, china, you've got v- you've got very different very tradi- different traditions of atheism. We can't sort of cover everything there. So it's sort of it's not just in the monotheistic era. we're going to talk about the classical mm-hmm. world, but it, it is it is largely Western in order to keep it quite coherent so at definition time. Oh, good. I know you love this bit. The OED. (laughs) Good old, I love the OED. The OED would like to sponsor the podcast. We like that very much. Sponsor, verb, to give money to podcasters. Uh, So it's from the the French. Atheist, one who denies or disbelieves the existence of a god. First citation, 1571 in translation of Calvin. Uh, The atheists which say there is no god pretty blunt atheism (laughs) disbelief in or denial of the existence of god also disregard of duty to god godlessness aka practical atheism from 1587 atheism that is to say utter godlessness (laughs) Um, now i do want to sort of we're not going to kind of go deep on this but there is a distinction between practical atheism Mm-hmm. which is acting as if there were no god and speculative atheism which is claiming that there is no god and really for centuries the latter was like crazy mm-hmm. like you just would not do that and so the only form of atheism that there was really was was practical atheism you know and this is one reason i think that the history of atheism is quite buried you know because you just couldn't come out and say that you were an atheist, so there's all these other words for it, and there's all these assumptions that you that you have to make about. Well, were they? Would we call them? Would they have called themselves an atheist with the freedoms that we have now?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there's this, there's this distinction of intervention, and for a lot of people, this
1: real safe zone was to go fine, God, whatever you need, right? But in terms of me explaining what's going on in the world, the tides, the movement of the moon, you know, whatever, they're not interfering in that, you know, the, the gods or God are just sort of over there and these non-interventionist figures. And it gives you this really valuable space in which to come up with materialist or naturalist explanations for the world without actually getting in trouble with any kind of political authority.
0: As we go along... With the history, I suppose, we, we'll talk about some of the, because it will come up, the philosophical reasons for atheism, the philosophical objections to atheism. But it's like, a, it's, this is history rather than philosophy. So we're not really going to do the kind of, you know, why it is good or bad to believe in God, except really, I suppose, through the, the ideas and experiences of the people that we're talking about, right?
1: We're not going to do the ontological argument. No, I think everyone will be very pleased to
0: hear that. I think you and I can be relieved we that
1: there's no ontological arguments well, here. Well, we do not we on the
0: podcast app, weren't? A kind of warning contains ontology, <laughs> like because some people don't want ontology when the kids are in the car. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just the history. So we tend to associate atheism with monotheism. And some people sort of start the story there, but it actually goes back to when there were the many gods rather than a god. And one thing which I found uh, deeply amusing, and you're going to take it from, from here, but really amusing was that the Romans called Christians "atheos," a Greek word, because they didn't believe in gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, which is sort of really kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, surprised me, but of course <laughs> makes total sense in Right,
1: right. Context. Yeah, yeah. It has been around for as long, we presume, as humanity has been around. Certainly we can say this, right? That it is as old and has the same intellectual heritage as monotheism. And actually it sort of emerges around the same time. So I think that monotheism probably, and this, this is seriously contested stuff, right. probably starts around 500 BC with the adoption of the sort of ancient Levantine warrior deity, uh, Wair. Now that is our God now. Right. That's where that starts You know, in Judaism and Christianity. About the same time, we see the first articulations of skepticism about religion in the writings of uh, Xenophanes. So the, the heritages are about the same sort of time. They've been around for the same amount of time. Which
0: God is, is, is this? Is this Yahweh?
1: Exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Of course, this is happening in different parts of the world, but yeah. Almost certainly there were disbelievers in the ancient cultures of, of Sumer, of Babylonia, and Egypt. The thing is that we just don't really have the records. Like The thing with ancient Greece is you've got the records. Yeah. You know there yeah, There's literally... there's, there's A single medical writer, Gallum, who we think at the moment probably has more, we've got more written records from him than we do from those three civilizations combined. Like there's just so much stuff with Greece and that matters because typically speaking, religion is adopted into the dominant social form. So when all you have are the official documents, you don't get to see any of the atheism, Mm. right? It's as if like someone tried to understand modern Britain by looking at the coronation of the king. You know, you'd be like, well, this seems like a very religious society (laughs) because they're talking about it all the time. But of course it isn't. With Greece, we do we get the sort of eccentrics and the deviants? we get the sort of outtakes and the alternate versions of events so we get a much more vivid picture of what's going on but i think what's hard in this process is to sort of you have to refix your brain because our whole concept of atheism is always against monotheism Mm. and that is not the way it is there And, and polytheism is a very different kettle of fish it demands very different things from people and it's actually funnily enough this is a preposterous word to use for the period that we're talking about, but it's much more liberal. You know, it doesn't ask so much of you. There's, it has these sort of infinite frontiers. If you find a new God, well, just add him. Just chuck him in the pantheon. You know, if you go, there's no like, this is the way to believe. This is the one true thing. The monolithic sense that comes from monotheism. So... Ancient Greece, it's not one thing. It's not one place. It's not one state. It's a bunch of city states. It's lots of different regional identities, multiple regional identities. And the religion, you know whether it's Zeus or the extended family, is usually sort of fixated on a particular place, a particular temple, and a particular kind of ritual. It's not about a personal relationship mm-hmm. with the divine, really. It's a sort of communal sense of, of ritual. Also, there are no real priests. I mean, th- there are, right? There are these guys that do the sacrificing, but they are not there to... Inter- I mean, it would be absurd to an degree inter- to say, oh, they're going to interpret what, you know, proper marriages or something like that. They're, that's not their job. They're kind of almost workmen, you know? And again, the gods are transferable between boundaries. So you can just import sort of, you know, oh, an Egyptian Isis right over here, right? And have that brought over, you know, to join Zeus a- a- and the others. This is the crucial thing here, that at this point, Atheism would be an extreme stance to take on the gods, but it would not be the complete rejection of the whole basis that society is based on. You're given quite a lot of leeway in terms right. of how you think of them. The first snippets we see there, and it's always snippets and it's fragments, and it's mostly from later writers about this period. And we're talking about here the pre-Socratics. So these are, this is about the 6th and 5th century BC. This is some of the earliest writing on anything really that we have and there we find it sort of immediately that they're not the pre-socratics are not one group they're sort of a string of, of different people thinking different things but you get this thread all the way through which is this idea in replacing the idea of gods being responsible for natural phenomena like waves wind whatever with the idea that actually it could have a material explanation yeah this we would now call sort of naturalism, which is the idea that the physical world is the sum total of existence. And uh, Julian Beagini, who wrote the, the introduction, I to was the just atheism. about to quote him exactly. Well, let me do that. I, I think this is a really beautiful quote. What most atheists believe is that although there is only one kind of stuff in the universe, and it is physical, out of this stuff comes minds, beauty, emotions, moral values. In short, the full gamut of phenomena that gives richness to human life. By the way, I think by virtue of that, it's not just them trying to find these material explanations. It's also they're engaged in critical thinking. They're basically saying, I'm not just going to take what I've been given by society and has been asked of me to believe these traditions. I will actually think with my own mind about what's going on. Now, the answers that they come to are obviously from completely insane. But these guys didn't have telescopes. You know, they didn't have any kind of apparatus. They just had their eyes and their brain to try and evaluate where stuff was coming from. And this is
0: where these disciplines... Sort of begin is in that idea like that medicine with Hi- Hippocrates and Gaetanus, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it, it's the idea of like looking for explanations that aren't the gods. Yeah. And Thucydides kind of invents the modern practice of history because again, it's just like telling the story of what happened mm-hmm. without reference to the gods. Yeah. So a lot of these kind of intellectual you know, fields that we have now are all about not necessarily going, there is no God there are no gods, but just going, let's sort of act as if there aren't mm-hmm. and look for explanations here. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that,
1: that and the <coughs> subtlety of that last part of what you said is really crucial, the sort of act as if they can't. And it's very hard to interpret. It's hard to see what pressures were on them. It's hard to see that maybe they just believe this stuff, but that's always there. So one of the key things here is this sort of irony that most of the atheist stuff comes from people who are saying... I believe in God. And we don't know the extent to which they kind of had to or the extent to which they actually believe that. So you take sort of turn of the 7th and 6th century, the Ion philosophers, and they're constantly looking for a single material, origin, that can explain natural phenomena. So I'm going to fuck up the pronunciations like you would not believe during this episode, so don't write angry emails because I know I'm cocking it up. So Thales was focused on water, Anaximander was on wind, Anaximenes was on air. And Xamander, so take this as an example, right? And to this point, people always thought that thunder was obviously Zeus, right? Mm. I mean, as you would. And he was like, well, no, I think it's probably the result of wind colliding with clouds. For stars, he sort of decided, oh, there's, there's, there must be a ring of fire around the world and a veil that protects us from seeing it. And the stars are like the gaps in the veil. It's true. It's obviously true. I mean, now that we know, of course, that this has been confirmed by yeah, science, yeah, 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 yeah. but you know, back mm-hmm. in the day, it was astonishingly right, uh, yeah, yeah. insightful of it would have seemed weird. Yeah. <laughs> In almost all of these cases, these guys do talk about God. And it's just like in what it's quite hard to work out how. I mean, it's it's almost as if God stands for sort of nature. They they talk about God. It's a bit like Stephen Hawking in the end of the brief history of time, right? Where he talks about the sort of like if we if we knew that, then we should know the mind of God. Or it's a bit like, you know, Einstein, which says God doesn't play dice. No, this is a it's a use of the word God that isn't necessarily the thing that religious could, people could suggest.
0: Can I could I give you some Einstein? Oh yeah, um, because I will mean, never th- say no to that. I thought this was kind of wonderful because a lot of time people talk about the way that atheism removes the wonder right in right. the universe, and this is just a, it's brilliant because and it really you understand what Einstein means when he says God. Says, the finest emotion of which we are capable is the mystic emotion. Herein lies the germ of all art and all true science. Anyone to whom this feeling is alien, who is no longer capable of wonderment and lives in a state of fear, is a dead man. To know that what is impenetrable for us really exists and manifests itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, whose gross forms alone are intelligible to our poor faculties. This knowledge, this feeling, that is the core of the true religious sentiment. In this sense, and in this sense alone, I rank myself among profoundly religious men. (laughs) New paragraph. The idea of personal God is an anthropological concept which I'm unable to take seriously. So... You know, he's going like, what is, you know, natural, that is kind of religion. That is full of wonder and mystery mm-hmm. and, and marvels. You don't need a, a sort of personalized God. And so, you, what you're talking about is even back then, is when people are talking about gods, it's like, how real are they to them and how much are they an expression? kind of the, the, you know, the mystery of, of the universe.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like even, I remember traveling in the Middle East, right, and that, that phrase, Inshallah, you know, if God wills it. Now, I remember, you know, you'd be told this, if, if I asked someone like, oh, how, when does the bus get here? It's like, oh, ten twenty, Inshallah, you know? It's like, at that point, is that person really thinking, if God wills it, or is it more like a sort of reference to just the sort of sense of fate and mm. nature and just mm. the me- mechanics and, of the world? I think there's this slippery sort of concept around the word God, especially when you go that far back, when you're talking about yeah. fragments from thousands of years ago, you know, that are mostly coming from later writers interpreting it. But nevertheless, even if they do believe in that God, their explanations are materialistic and that's the crucial part here. Yeah. Then you see another sort of element that, that we still see in the modern day, which is this instinctive satire of religion. So this comes from Xenophanes of Colophon, who's the first Ion that we actually know in his own words. And he treats the gods... As sort of, the, he's like, obviously these must be human creations. This is what he says. Now, if cows, horses, and lions had hands and were able to draw with those hands and create things as humans do, horses would draw gods in the form of horses and cows in the form of cows, right? You know, and it, which is, by the way, a very good argument. <laughs> you know, but it's also it's got that unmistakable sort of sav- like that sense of satire in it already of the mockery that yeah. I think we, that we will see in the new atheist stuff that we read. Yeah. and I sus- I suspect because this comes all the way through all the way through this period that it it's to do with the sense of solidarity of individuals who are really quite distant from each other who often won't know anyone who's saying this stuff you know and who are probably coming under quite a lot of pressure not to say it and your main way of almost in-group formation ac- across years and distance is is mockery of of the opponent really slowly greece becomes a sort of imperial subordinate mm. of of rome and rome is different to greece it's not this Cluster of sort of half-connected city-states. It is a central power with a lot of allowance of regional diversity over this huge empire. This, you know, basically the whole sort of world almost at that point, and that creates a very different political dynamic. They're constantly thinking: How do we keep this interconnected, highly centralized, highly bureaucratic, but still govern fifty million people in this vast, linguistically diverse territory? So at first, the Romans sort of allow all the religions to flourish. They can just sort of add them in whenever they need to, and it's a good way of getting people on board with them. So you know they're all there sort of the cult of the Egyptian goddess of Isis, the Iranian fire god Mithras, the Syrian fish deity Attagatis, which I sometimes wish, you know, if if the Romans were going to take on one religion and spread it for the rest of human history, that it was a Syrian fish deity rather than the one that we got. But you know, mm-hmm. you can't have everything that you want. And so well as the Christians. The Christians at this point, by the way, and I did not know this, were not actually persecuted very badly at all. Like they Basically, there was one emperor that persecuted them. All the stories of Christian persecution come in the 4th century AD, once the mm. Christians were in power and wanted to create this martyrdom myth. But most of the time, they were fine. And incidentally, also fascinating to me, most Christians were other things too. There was really no border. You could sort of, I mean, most of them were basically Jews. You know, there, there was hardly any Christianity there at all. Others just still believed in Zeus, still had the Pantheon. It's Christianity in its sort of orthodox form approved by the emperor. The edict insists on submission to a single theological orthodoxy. This is the one established at the Council of Nicaea, which is basically about, you know, is, is the son a bit lesser in his divinity mm-hmm. than the father or are they equal? But even that, it's kind of fascinating, right? Because you never had any of that under polytheism. There was never this sort of this struggle over orthodoxy. It was always just, like, okay, right, well, whoever's got their bit. Now all of that goes. In fact, if you don't sign up to that, that kind of Catholic dogma, you're a heretic. So for the unsound Christians, for the Jews, for the polytheists, they, they were all judged, according to this edict, to be, quote, demented lunatics. The emperor and the deity sort of stand as one. And what you get, and, and by the way, once is. His grandson comes in and just then goes even further. I mean, there's a crime even of remembering heretics. No one should recall to memory a Manichaean or a Donatist. There should be one Catholic worship, one salvation. Public debate about religion is bad. In the late Roman period, monotheistic, centralized religion conveyed the desire for political unity in an empire that had come dangerously close to collapse. And then suddenly the walls come down and that great growing of hundreds of years of an atheist mindset, of naturalism, of skepticism, of independent thought and of satire just is eradicated for over a millennia. It disappears until the Enlightenment.
0: The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a prime minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast with me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week with extra special additions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: One thing that really makes this gig worth doing is the encouragement and support that we get from our fantastic Patreon supporters. So thank you to Helen Hannah, Jake Carson, Gabby, thanks Gabby, Malcolm Sleuth, Kyo Mathewen. To find out how you can get a personal shout out on the show plus loads of benefits and origin story merchandise, click on the link
0: in the show notes. It's quite remarkable how long you have to wait for the first avert atheist text in the sort of Christian West, mm-hmm. he's 1770, okay. yeah. Baron de Holbach's The System of Nature. Um, Where well, he makes these three basic arguments, religion offers the wrong basis for morality, religion is unscientific, and religion underpins a corrupt social order and suppresses reform. So these are kind of fairly familiar uh, arguments now. But he was quite sort of lonely. <laughs> <was a> bit <laughs> I bit bet he was. A bit better in France. After a trip to England, he told Diderot that he'd met lots of deists, but no atheists. Because an atheist and a scoundrel are almost synonymous terms. A deist, like I said earlier, they, they, sort of, they were like a stepping stone. They were like a foot in the door, I think, for right. atheists. Which is that God had sort of kicked things off, but was not actively monitoring us and intervening in our, in our lives. Mm-hmm. So God to a deist could mean lots of things. It was a very flexible... And, and a safer space, basically. And, but it's only the Enlightenment that makes even this possible. And and so if you're reading about like the work of Isaac Newton or Edmund Halley or whatever, these these kind of massive scientific breakthroughs, but they're still wasting, in retrospect, a lot of time trying to reconcile this with, with Scripture. Mm. And going, well, did a comet cause the deluge? When did it cause the deluge? You know, <laughs> Newton spent... <laughs> Decades, sort of writing, calendar, reworking, like, when, when the end of the world was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, and Voltaire uh, joked that Newton was obsessed with the revelation to console mankind for the great superiority he had over them in other respects.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's all bangers with Voltaire, isn't it? It's, it is. He, I mean,
0: remorseless. You know, flawed. <laughs> you have to flag that one up. <laughs> but good quips. And what's interesting is that there are these, you know, into the 18th century, there are things that sound like atheism. So, this Hobbes line from Leviathan, where he defines fear of power invisible, feigned by the mind or imagined from tales, publicly allowed is religion, not allowed superstition. Hmm. But then he, he adds up, there's another line, he sort of qualifies that and goes, Oh yeah, yeah, but if, if if the power is real, then that's true religion. Right, right, you know, It right, right, seems right. as if he kind of was like, I need to add this on, denied he was an atheist. Same with people like David Hume, Spinoza, These these kind of figures that you would put in the history of atheism by no means would they want to be called atheist. And as you get into the late 1700s, you've got geologists like uh, Georges Cuvier and James Hutton establishing the earth was in fact older than 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shocking news to the DUP, <laughs> you know, <laughs> discovery of, you know, that there were once these things called dinosaurs, much less pressure of scientists to kind of like look to the Bible for approval. And yet, this Fierce opposition to atheism, and this with that David Berman, in a history of atheism in Britain, says that there is this kind of dual attitude, which is both that it's ridiculous and they couldn't possibly believe that, mm. but also they're at their peril. Yeah, yeah. You know, they both they both yeah. they do and do not exist. So Edmund Burke. I wrote about the French Revolution, obviously famously conservative. He <laughs> goes, we all know that man is by his constitution a religious animal, that atheism is against not only our reason, but our instincts, and that it cannot prevail long. Yes. So it's sort of going, well, we don't need to worry about it, but also watch out for
1: them. Yeah. But like, but also, and that idea of, the, the, na- the it's almost biological in us, you right. know, that idea of religion. And, and therefore, if you're an atheist, you, you're kind of an unnatural
0: yeah. thing, right? The first edition of Encyclopedia Britannica 1771, defi- trying to define atheists, mm-hmm. as many people, both ancient and modern, have pretended to atheism or have been reckoned atheists by the world. But it is justly questioned whether any man seriously adopted such a principle. Oh, wow. These pretensions, therefore, must be founded on pride or affectation. Wow. Really letting us down there, encyclopedia. They they is, this is what they've updated that entry. <laughs> you surprise me. <laughs> I should say, if you go into Britannica <laughs> online now, it's not it's not that one. So you can understand why a lot of people preferred to be deists, and even then, that was quite risky. Mm-hmm. Um, you, of course, a big fan of Thomas Paine. Uh, well, I think we're both quite big yeah, fans. The great so. propagandist of the of the American Revolution, who got into awful trouble in uh, <laughs> in 1794 in France. He wrote The Age of Reason, which attacked both the Bible and the Church. Mm-hmm. Now you have here this amazingly impressive man. Yes. Yeah. you know, he's important in the American Revolution. Founded the first ever anti-slavery group in America really early on realized and this is a theme we're going to pick up later the french revolution had spawned a sort of cruel pseudo religion he says the intolerant spirit of church persecutions had transferred itself into politics the tribunal styled revolutionary supplied the place of an inquisition and the guillotine of the stake that's beautiful i mean like but from him of all people i know right you know they're through it all like a really Mm -hmm. admirable figure And yet, as a result of this, banned from Britain, his books were burned. In America, there was an assassination attempt. Hmm. He died poor and discredited. His allies had all turned against him. Yeah, his reputation Mm -hmm. was tanked for like decades. Even Theodore Roosevelt, like a century later, calls him a filthy little atheist. Wow. (laughs) And yet, many of the founding fathers were also deists. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin. And this is an amazing sort of Orwell-like line from John Adams to Jefferson. When Britain repealed a statute... It's been on the books for over a century against denying the Holy Trinity. And the statute, funnily enough, did not outlaw atheism because, again, they just didn't know no one's an atheist. Right. They outlawed sort of various heretical... Heretical Christian beliefs. Christian beliefs. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, yeah, Isaac Newton denied the Holy Trinity, but he kept it secret because huh. it was our, our, you was... Know, I had no idea. Yeah. Isaac right. Newton's religious beliefs are wild. So John Adams writes suggests that miracles or prophecies might frighten us out of our wits, might scare us to death, might induce us to lie, to say that we believe that two and two make five, but we should not believe it, we should know the contrary. Oh, yes, that is very oil. Yeah. Right. So it's this amazing moment and this great book, Free Thinkers. Susan Jacoby argues that actually a secular constitution, as we will see, was probably only possible in a brief window of time because the backlash against the French Revolution mm. coincided with a rise of religious conservatism and that we would not have had, America, would not have had the constitution it has probably like 10, 20 years That's later. That's unbelievably interesting. Yeah. It's mm. like, oh, well, thank you.
1: Mm. Um, but then also, the French Revolution wouldn't have happened without the American one. But whatever, no, it's it's, it's interesting. Right. Yeah.
0: And in Britain, we should have a word for basically the first celebrity atheist in Britain uh, was Percy Bysshe Shelley, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. booted out of Oxford University in 1811 for publishing a pamphlet called "The Necessity of Atheism." Mm. Followed this with a refutation of Deism. So he was like, not he was kind of abandoning the safe space and going, nope, 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 I'm definitely an atheist. Now, weirdly, he was a Deist. And this is, I think, interesting, like what persecution creates atheists. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is an odd case of persecution, nonetheless. He was basically a deist until he tried to marry uh, Harriet Grove, who was his cousin. Her family blocked this not because she was his cousin. that was fine, but because he was a deist, and he was so angry about this he he became he turned against Christianity more aggressively because he was sort of turning against. He's that part of his family, mm. and that sort of made him an atheist. And this keeps happening. So the publisher, Richard Carlyle, who launched atheism as a coherent movement, he became an atheist really because he was jailed for blasphemy for publishing The Age of Reason, the mm-hmm. Thomas Paine book. Mm-hmm. Same story with George Jacob Holyoke, who popularized the word secularist later. A, he was jailed for blasphemy, became more of an unbeliever. Now, in America, the euphemism that I like, and I think it's one that I still really like, is freethinker, mm. <laughs> where you could be a deist, you could be an atheist, you could be <laughs> something a little, you know, you sort of need to spell it out. But they were hugely important to uh, the Seneca Falls Declaration, uh-huh. which launches sort of American feminism. Okay. How so? Well, the, the people who, the early feminists were largely freethinkers. A lot of the key abolitionists were oh, free wow. thinkers. Of course, you had Christian abolitionists as well, and Christian feminists. But freethinkers played a a huge role in this. There's a lot of argument about whether Abraham Lincoln was kind of a freethinker. He was a skeptic. He never joined a church. He was a big fan of the Age of Reason, Hmm. Uh, which is not like I'm promoting the Age of Reason now, but it does keep coming up. It's not a bad thing to promote. But then there was this effort to make America more Christian and almost to rewrite history and to rewrite Lincoln. So, the key figure here is the Treasury Secretary, Salmon P. Chase, which is an amazing, amazing name. And he's probably the person who added God to the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation Declaration. Oh, wow. In early drafts, Lincoln's drafts, there's no God. He adds God. He's definitely the guy who puts in God we trust on American money. Then Lincoln dies and his early biographers, who are Christians, basically zhuzh up his... Faith. So, oh, wow. So anytime he mentions God, they go, well, this shows who's Christian, but he was more in this kind of loose free thinking tradition. And the guy, I mean, just an amazing person who I did not know much about, but it was the, the quintessential free thinker was Robert Greene Ingersoll. Do you know this guy? The name rings a bell. Right. So he was known as the great agnostic. He'd been a colonel in the Civil War, abolitionist, very popular speaker across the country. People would sort of get in their horse and cart and mm-hmm. travel to hear him speak. And he's this sort of large, friendly, soft-looking man, like a, <laughs> like a, like a big baby, like <laughs> a big happy baby. And also because free thinkers were associated with like promiscuity and maybe polygamy and all mm. that. He, he was morally spotless, happily married. Even his opponents liked him. Mm-hmm. Thomas Edison said, he had all the attributes of a perfect man. And in my opinion, no finer personality ever existed. Jesus Christ. Which is high praise. Yes. And Ingersoll was actually the man finally responsible for rehabilitating Thomas Paine's reputation. And so he, he was a very kind of like non-threatening figure. Right. But also he came up with these zingers. Said, so if a man would follow today the teachings of the Old Testament, he would be a criminal. If he would follow strictly the teachings of the New, he would be insane. <laughs> Which is pretty harsh, and yet somehow he kind of he gets away with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were a feminist atheist, no good at all. So there's a key Jewish freethinker, Ernestine L. Rose, abolitionist, suffragist from Poland originally. Um, and one newspaper said of her, we know of no object more deserving of contempt, loathing and abhorrence than a female atheist. We hold the vilest strumpet from the stews to be by comparison respectable. Mm. This is like, you know, late 19th century.
1: Right. So right. still
0: this like tremendous hostility.
1: Well, especially, what I guess, when combined with existing racism existing sexism it's just going to unleash in a very toxic jewish you know all these other
0: things and then of course the the thing that it really becomes combined with and this sort of this keeps coming up in these these episodes is uh the red scare anti-communism huh that's what fucks everything up so you've got free thinkers they want to establish birth control programs the american civil liberties union but then they they kind of they hit this fierce anti-communism. Atheism comes associated with communism. Mm-hmm. The whole free-thinking movement, which was based on um, these fantastic speakers like Ingersoll, kind of falls apart because radio is the new mass communication medium, and if you're an atheist, you can't get on the radio. Wow! So they kind of lose that mass audience. Yeah, yeah. Then later on, we get the 1950s Red Scare and McCarthyism, which is when the words under God get added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh, wow. So, so anti-communism associated with almost, you know, making America, the fabric of America, more religious. The Pledge of Allegiance was written by a, a socialist. Huh.
1: I had no idea. And I have no idea that they
0: just added the God bit in later. Yeah, like in, in 1954, I think. Where it, all this becomes quite confusing is if you're listening to that story of Thomas Paine and Ingersoll and Ernestine Rose and Shelley, you have these people who are... They're liberals or they're socialists. It's super progressive. You mm. know, they're anti-slavery and you know pro-feminist. But at a point in the 20th century, mid 20th century, look at who, is, who is perhaps the most successful atheist in America? Ayn Rand. Oh, yeah. You know, this is also. real black mark.
1: For cons- Just services. to say, this whole bit of yours is basically like a ghost train through all of our previous since right? You've now yeah. covered like almost every single base. Um, <laughs> It's like origin
0: story bingo. (laughs) So, so this is kind of like if you're looking at atheists of the 20th century, you've got Ayn Rand, Freud, Lenin and Trotsky, Hmm. Nietzsche, Camus, Bertrand Russell, Joseph Conrad. Like, Bertrand Russell being like the most important kind of British Mm -hmm. atheist of Mm -hmm. of the early 20th century. So, you can't really say what sort of atheism stands for. Because, you know, Lenin and Ayn Rand famously didn't, did not get on. <laughs> a- and also you have the confusion, still a confusion in terms of, of agnostic and atheist. So Ingersoll called himself the great agnostic, or was known as great agnostic, not the great atheist. Bertrand Russell writes an essay called, Am I an Atheist or an Agnostic? And it's a bit of an odd context. You can see why it's often paraphrased because he's really talking about the, the, um, the Greek gods, in this particular hmm. argument he's making, he goes, in regard to the Olympic gods, speaking to a purely philosophical audience, I would say that I am an agnostic. But speaking popularly, I think that all of us would say in regard to those gods that we were atheists. In regard to the Christian god, I should, I think, take exactly the same line.
1: I see the argument. Right. He's just saying, well, it's, it's almost it's the Ricky Gervais sort of thing that you hear now, right? Well, I'm also a disbeliever in Zeus. So I'm also right. a disbeliever he's, in, you know.
0: But he's against dogma. Mm-hmm. So he's going, okay, sure, I'm not dogmatically certain that none of these kinds to but for all intents and purposes, I am an atheist.
1: I'm not sure I'm ever going to forgive myself for mentioning Ricky Gervais and Bertrand Russell in the same point. <laughs> two not, two yeah. great thinkers. I'm really feel the shudder of regret over that comment, still
0: working its way through my soul. So you, know, you sort of bring us up to, I suppose, more, more like closer to the present day is atheist is still like a bold claim Mm. that a lot of people did not want to make. Um, So there's a figure that I must admit, I was quite ignorant of, Madeline Murray O'Hare. As am I. He was the founder of uh, American Atheists, the association, brought the lawsuit in the early 60s that led the Supreme Court to rule mandatory Bible reading in schools unconstitutional. Life magazine called her the most hated woman in America. (laughs) As a result, she was pelted with stones, uh, oh my so God. shit in the mail, ended up being murdered, but for completely different reasons. Her story is quite remarkable. Huh. But anyway, she says in the, in the 60s that she was an atheist, not an agnostic, nor a rationalist, nor a realist, nor secularist, nor humanist, nor any other fancy name <laughs> behind which people <laughs> must hide in our society in order to be safe in our society. <laughs> and the, this is in the 60s, and it is still really bold. Because most atheists are going, well, I'm an agnostic. I'm a humanist. Mm. I'm a rationalist. That word still just inflamed people. And it took enormous courage, which I don't feel that we are being enormously courageous in no, this podcast. I couldn't by, disagree more. By, no. saying that we're, um, by saying that we're atheists. And but in all of this research, I think what startled me was how sort of hard it is to understand the history of like a strict definition of atheism when people had to use all these different euphemisms.
1: What do you say that even now, of course, you don't have to be brave to say it, but that even now it feels quite unfashionable to say it? You know, like for the people who do not just quite evidently do not believe and you know mm. not religious people it's still it's still just a bit of an av- which i think probably comes down to what we're going to talk about in the new Atheist, yeah. but there's still just a bit of a don't quite want to go there with the word the word doesn't have associations people clearly don't feel like i really want to associate with that word unless they're
0: pretty hardcore on these Well issues. in um in polls of american voters you know people would say they were far more likely to vote for a jewish president a president of hmm. uh, of any other you know any race a gay president than an atheist. Right, right. You know, even though you look back at the founding fathers and they're probably less... You know the less firm religious believers <laughs> than any president that we've had in in you know i don't know since whatever in the la- in the last many decades
1: this whole story so far makes it quite hard to believe in the inevitability of human progress doesn't it i mean you sort of get there but you know w- when you start the story with well it took us like a thousand five hundred years to get back to the position that we we're in in three hundred eighty right <laughs> it's quite a humbling experience <laughs> I'm Rob Hutton, and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it, so I had to find someone to
0: watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon, and I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis and Saturn Sangara as we re-watch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. So we should talk about people that really are atheists and they want you to know it. They do wish to discuss it. An extraordinary length. The new atheism. So in 2006, uh, a journalist described uh, four thinkers as the four horsemen uh, of new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, all of whom had huge and indeed multiple bestsellers. <laughs> and you've read, we decided to divvy them up. Mm. I have read uh, God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. And I've read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I
1: think we, we divvied them on the basis of just the one that we happen to have lying around the house, I think. Yes. I was, I just say that I always feel quite defensive about Richard Dawkins. I quite like him. I'd sort of, you know, I think he's right about well, most things that he says on this issue and on many others. I, I remember reading his books when I was young, you know, on evolution and just being like really moved. I think he writes beautifully about stuff We're talking stuff.
0: book Dawkins, not Twitter Dawkins. These well, are two I, different people. <laughs> I, I don't know. You
1: see, I don't even think, well, I'm not so certain about that. Like I, I really like him and I think he's just one of those persons okay. that, you know, they just shouldn't be on Twitter because they don't realise what how it's going to be received there and it's not good, but he's just got a jumbled up kind of individual mind and I feel innately defensive towards him. The God Delusion is a terrible book. Really? It, I really disliked the book. I found myself disliking him quite a lot as I was reading it. Why? And I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it. Let me frame why I think it's, it's, it's such a bad book by virtue of his of addressing the, the one unfair criticism of him in that book. Okay. And it's the fundamentalist atheist thing. Right. Oh, he's a, fun, he's a militant. He's a funder, He's just as bad as the people on the other side. Of it. And this is just utter utter nonsense and he i mean he does a very good job of explaining why it is nonsense where he says you know fundamentalists know they are right because they've read a The truth in a holy book by contrast what i as a scientist believe i believe not because of reading a holy book but because i have studied the evidence now that is a correct thing and it is important for us to always you know it's just like no this is that is a completely false equivalence that you've just drawn up here like someone who is coming things through evidence and reason Hmm. is in a different category someone who's just believing something by faith because it happens to be in a book right yeah i mean and and so to to equate him with him i just think of so is it's so just grossly unfair
0: and this is a very old argument it was like Shelley made yes. the the empiricist argument which is like there is no evidence Bertrand Russell went was asked what if you died and you you end up going to heaven and confronted with God mm-hmm. who, who said why didn't you believe in me and he was like well you didn't give us enough evidence <laughs> 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 because if you wanted us to believe you should have just given us more <laughs> Dawkins is um his you know, his his
1: address of that agnostic point, I think, is really strong, right? It's just like, what matters is not whether God is disprovable, because he isn't, mm. but whether his existence is probable. Right. That is the question. And that just goes to the heart of all of that stuff. The agnosticism, if the agnosticism is, could this conceivably be true? Then almost everything, you know, everyone's agnostic on everything. So that part is right. Where the criticisms of him as a fundamentalist, I think, are right, is that he's he's not really motivated by... Trying to convince anyone of anything, he has a really simplistic notion, I think, of the harm that religion does. Okay, so let me put it this way the point where Christianity sort of took over the Roman Empire, there were suddenly holy wars. You know, over these differences in Christianity, Mm -hmm. very, very quickly, and those had not existed before. No one went to war for Zeus. I mean, they said Zeus is on our side, but they didn't go to war in Zeus's name. So it is clearly true that religious conflict is a thing that exists, Mm. irrespective of other conflicts. But also, there were wars before Christianity. (laughs) You know, bad shit happened before. Well, religion and certainly Christianity. But reading some of the bits in the god religion, just it's, it's honestly not very clear whether he believes that. I mean, he's just, he sort of says, I mean, he does a, a couple of points. He sort of acknowledges it, but he doesn't seem to acknowledge it in his argument themselves. He says, imagine a world with no religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no 7-7, no crusades.
0: Is this his version of Imagine?
1: Yeah, he does mention the... To be, right, I, okay. I actually so, took that bit out where he says, along with John Lennon. Yeah, look, no, that's, I just really, want to
0: imagine the singing yeah, it now. The singing,
1: right. Yeah, that's great. So him in a, what, a white suit by a piano. Imagine there's
0: <laughs> no suicide bombers. <laughs>
1: Okay. Doesn't really, doesn't really track. No. Uh, no crusades, no witch hunts, no gunpowder plot, no Indian partition, no Israel-Palestinian war, no Serb-Croat-Muslim massacres, no Northern Ireland troubles, no honour killings. You're like. All of these absolutely have a religious element to them. Hmm. It is simply not the case that if you were to remove religion, like none of these conflicts would exist, or that at the point that the conflict is happening, people are not sometimes thinking in a way that is, yes, embroiled in religious thought, but also can exist outside of it. He doesn't really have an explanation, for instance, for like, yeah. the, the killing of the kulaks, right, in, in the Soviet Union. This just has no religious dimension at all, right? But he, there's no real explanation for why that would be taking place. He talks a lot about suicide bomb. I mean, you know, this is coming out in that kind of that post-September This is sort of the period. problem with this
0: whole movement is that it comes out in this sort of war on terror context and therefore gets tied up with a particular animus against... Um, Against Islam, and that's why it's dated, I think, so badly. Because now I think people see it, and they see Islamophobia. Now, obviously, there's, you know, this is a whole debate I'm not going to go into, but I mean, this this, it totally defines the context of all this.
1: It really does, and it actually makes some of it quite hard to read because I, I think what, what what happens here is a sort of where is the where is your assessment of the power dynamic in your head. And I think in his head, it's the kids that are forced to learn all this stuff like he was in school and, you know, society enforcing it. And so you're the rebel, right? You're the one standing up against it. And by the way, I sign up to that shit. Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. right. But in the context in which he's writing, he's sort of unable to see that actually, well, Muslims are having a really hard time of it right now. <laughs> you know, and if you just his thing is that I will talk about the Christians and the Muslims in the same way, and I think he broadly does. He's pretty much even-handed in his sort of belligerent offensiveness, mm-hmm. which is all fine. But but you just sort of think like, really? Like, do do you can you really not conceive that you might have? An upper power dynamic over talking yeah. about Islam at this precise moment in time, And because he doesn't have that conception of the sort of power framework in which he's operating. It comes across as bullying when what I think he's thinking he's doing is speaking truth to power. Yeah. His biggest failure, I would, I would say is this, is that he has this beautiful, beautiful story about the difference sort of between science and religion he says he was an undergrad at a zoology department in Oxford and he said there was this sort of respected elder statesman uh, academic there who for years had sort of denied that there was this thing called the Colgi apparatus which is this microscopic feature of the interior of cells. And then a visiting lecturer comes and he basically just provides this like extremely compelling evidence in a lecture for, for why there is. And he says that, you know, the academic walked to the front and said, my dear fellow, I wish to thank you. I've been wrong all of these 15 years. And Dawkins says, like, the memory of the incident still mm. brings a lump to my throat. And it's just the most beautiful idea of what science is and what reason, you know, that you'll be prepared to change your mind. And that is sort of, it's, it's Karl Popper stuff, of like being opening yourself up to refutation. You know, it's the John Stuart Mill thing. Make yourself vulnerable to yeah. the strongest version of the argument against you. But he never, ever does that. In fact, the, the laziness of it. He's great on arguments for design, all the evolution stuff. Mm. He's obviously, he's just absolutely spot on on it. I mean, he deals with Thomas Aquinas' proofs in three pages, okay, by basically saying that just looks like nonsense to me. You know, like, I don't believe in Thomas Aquinas' proofs, but these are a core component of Western philosophy. <laughs> you could give it a bit more time. Spends pages after pages going through the Bible and going through the comments of televangelists
0: in the US and this and that. And right. Like, Come on. Hitchens does the same thing. Oh. It's like there's bits. I mean, there's some good bits and there's some some bad bits in the book. But like he literally goes through like, I think, you know, the story of Moses (laughs) and goes, well, this is very unlikely, because it says that he lived (laughs) to like 120. And go, we're meant to believe that. And so of course it's incredibly easy to go through the Bible going, didn't happen. Yeah. Or that doesn't add up. Mm. Or this doesn't make sense. If you take this verse from here and this verse from there, they they contradict each other. And it just felt so sort of easy. And maybe they feel, well, look, loads of people still believe in this. So this is a job that needs to be done. But I just thought, come on, man, this is like fish in a barrel. Yes, (laughs) Inconsistencies in the Bible.
1: (laughs) No, but that's exactly it. It's such an easy, you're not going for the strongest version of the argument. You know, anything that there might be that's, whether it's an interesting philosophical perspective or whether it's, you know, that stuff about what does religion perhaps provide something for community. The the classic thing would be this, where he says, you know, atheists have done evil things. He acknowledges, but they've never done it because of atheism. Well, the counter to that is, okay, but it might be worth us talking about how if religion is responsible for so as a motivating force for so much of the evil that you see in the world how come in atheist societies we see such a small reduction in the evil you know or even an expansion of it right how come when we do remove religion and this i think is the thomas Paine french revolution thing Hmm. we don't necessarily see a significant improvement in morality and that stuff just feels completely unassessed by a mind that's not in this instance, particularly interested in grappling with any serious objection to its position. Can I tell
0: you a little bit about um, pseudo religion? Oh, yeah. So this is my take on this. I've not made it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bertrand Russell in 1920, you know, really early on goes Bolshevism as a social phenomenon is to be reckoned as a religion, not as an ordinary political movement. He said Marx, he, saw, he saw Marxism as a religion. Dialectical materialism was God, the revolution was the second coming, the proletariat was the elect, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. You know, the classic book about ex-communists, 1950, is called The God That Failed. And even Hitchens in one of the most interesting bits of the book as a sort of ex-Marxist says, those of us who had sought a rational alternative to religion had reached a terminus that was comparably dogmatic. <laughs> Orwell in 1984, compares the, the Big Brother's regime to Catholicism in certain ways. There's always this relationship between totalitarianism and organized religion. But of course, in doing that comparison, you have to acknowledge that the totalitarianism happens without organized religion, that mm-hmm. there is this sort of this commonality with the elect and evildoers and this sort of mm. narrative of apocalyptic narrative, really, of cleansing and renewal. Yeah, the rebirth. Through violence. Yeah, yeah. So you know, fascism has this religious thing. Marxism and Stalinism and they're not the same thing, but they they have those those narratives. Conspiracy theories are pseudo religious as well, in many ways. Anyway, nineteen seventy six, Albania and Cuba both become official atheist states, mm-hmm. and then they're just like mirror image theocracies <laughs> with the persecutions and the heresy hunts and all right, that, right, you know? right. Um, and actually, that doesn't really last that long. So dogma seems to me the problem that, that, that these things are speaking to similar human needs. I'm not saying religion is akin to fascism or Stalinism. I'm saying that if you take away God, you have a lot of the worst bits of religion just manifest themselves in different ways. And this yeah, is why I yeah. find the most persuasive you know, argument for atheism is, is the free thinking one. It's like you cannot just replace it with another narrative and a set of rules.
1: Which is basically what I did when I was, you know, a teenager. So I think of, mm. I, I right. can go quite easily from Christianity to Marxism because there's that sort of emotional satisfaction there. And if that's the place you're at, if that's what you're going for, then you will just end up replicating the problems. I know that you, I mean, you were once considering writing a book about Hitchin. So I think you're, you're quite a mm. fan and I'm super mm. in, it. doesn't sound like you had a wonderful time reading the book. I'm interested by him. I still
0: think of him here as like intellectual Begbie. <laughs> like, you know, he's going to fucking weigh it. You know, he's going to lose his shit. And when he's attacking someone you don't like, you're just like, you know, sort of go for it. Mm-hmm. And then when he's not, you know, he's attacking someone else, you're just like, what can you do, man? That's, <laughs> that's just what he's like. It's, that's Begbie. <laughs> so he's sort of incredibly needlessly rude. Mm-hmm. Okay, he calls religion evil nonsense and humanity's oldest enemy and so on, much like Dawkins there. Yeah, yeah. Then he's constantly calling people who believe in... God, pathetic, infantile, laughable, lunatic. <laughs> Even as like has a needless go at the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Just, just along the way. And you're like, well, you don't, you don't need to do that. And it reminds me of, uh, I'm sorry, quite oral again, but this line, he was an embittered atheist, the sort of atheist who does not so much disbelieve in God as personally dislike him. <laughs> and so I wonder actually whether this is, you know, it's more anti-theist. Mm-hmm. than atheist, because atheists can just lead you to free thinking, to secularism. This is like he wants to tear down religion, Sam Harris, Dawkins, likewise. it Den- 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 a bit more sort of moderate on that. And in order to do that, you just have to point out the most pernicious and irrational things. It's when I became an atheist at first, you know, it's, it's, it's the Spanish inquisition. Yeah, yeah. You know, the crusades, these like horrendous things done in, in the name of religion. So it's sort of, it's not hard to make that argument. Where I think he he falls down is he just has no sympathy for the emotional potency mm. of religion at all. He basically sees it as failed science. He says, religion was the world's first and worst attempt to make sense of reality. It was the best the species could do at the time when we had no concept of physics, chemistry, Biology or medicine, so he says it's basically equivalent to alchemy or astrology. It was just like, well, it was a, you needed something, but now we have science and everything, and now we don't need that mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he does acknowledge, but does doesn't seem to take seriously, you know, the obs- Freud's observation. Freud was, couldn't believe in religion because he says it's too obviously derived from our fear of death. <laughs> <It's laughs> obviously, I think David Bedell makes this point in his new book, which I haven't read <laughs> yet. You know that. It, you can't really believe in it because it satisfies a need too, too obviously. Right. It's obviously wishful thinking. You know, that um, Larkin line where is that vast moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die. It's just, <laughs> it's just gorgeous. Yes. <laughs> um, that, is, that is a better line than you will find in most books about atheism. <laughs> um, but like, it is a legitimate fear. death is awful and so you know to just go like oh well this is just a sort of bullshit consolation Mm -hmm. and you think yeah but people need the consoling now i don't understand personally why it has to come with so many rules about you know diet and headwear (laughs) and all of that Mm. but that fundamental but those are things you can attack it's very easy to go why would god care what? how your hair was cut. Why would God care which meat you ate, right? They, you know, these are kind of easy, easy critiques. But actually to get to like, well, why is religion so potent? And then paired with what we were just talking about, which is a kind of downplaying of the things that fanatics can do without God. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're wrestling. Like I think the best... Atheist and agnostic writing in the past feels like you're really struggling with something. Whereas these guys feel almost like they've arrived when a lot of the key battles have been fought. And they're just making the most the most obvious points in a pretty obnoxious way. What
1: is fascinating to me is you know, there's always that question of, who are you writing for, right? Any anyone mm, sits mm. down to write something, who are you writing for? Yeah. And it's addressed, I, I suspect with both of these books, but certainly with the Dawkins one, it's addressed as if it's writing to, you know, convince people, but is in fact aimed at people who already agree, which is where you get this language. I mean, the, the stuff that was satire that was required, you know, in, in, yeah. in the Greek period, and I get it, and I still get it now. I understand why we want to use that language. And if we want to really yeah. do damage to religion, and I do... You have to be able to A, speak to religious people, and B, understand what it is that it is offering. And if you don't have that, you can't get rid of it. I I remain of the sort of feeling that we don't talk about it, but every day around this world, it is incalculable the amount of damage that is done to people on a daily basis by religion, where it's about, you can't marry this person, you can't become this thing, you can't go there. Just this restriction on the human potential for self-flourishing and for self-discovery that religion, which is very easy to not spot if you're living in London, if you're living in England, if you're living in the UK. But if you're, you, you don't even have to go very far away. You can be in the US, but certainly across whole swathes of this world, people are absolutely smothered by that. And if, if we do want to do something about it, you do have to understand what it is offering to people, mm. and you do have to be able to talk to them in a way that isn't just about making yourself feel better. And I certainly didn't feel that I saw any of that with these books.
0: Well, funnily enough, for balance, I read um, <laughs> a book which is perhaps even more obnoxious, uh, in the opposite direction, John Gray's Seven Types of Atheism, oh, in fuck. which he strawmans atheism seven times. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so snide. He was talking about the new atheism. He says, contains little that is novel or interesting. After the first chapter, I will not refer to it again. <laughs> it is mostly a media phenomenon and best appreciated as a type of entertainment. Right. So mm. he lands some good blows. He says, you know, they attack religion as if it was no more than an obsolete scientific theory. The problem with, uh, with John Gray is he, hates, he thinks everything is a pseudo religion. He doesn't like the enlightenment, <laughs> you know. So, he says, it's all just monotheism by other means. Oh. Hence the unending succession of God surrogates such as humanity and science, technology and transhumanism. And and hate- you're just like So, he hates humanists and people who believe in like progress and people who believe too much in science. And, and people go, well, what does atheism give you? you know, what, where's the meaning that atheism is offering you? Is it just an absence? What is its? And I don't think the case for atheism is made in uh, the Hitchens book. It's mm-hmm. the case against religion, it's not the case for atheism. Right. And it was really interesting to John Gray's book where he, he's just so gloomy and pessimistic that the best he can come up with is like Schopenhauer and Joseph Conrad just going, hmm. like, just everything is shit. <laughs> Which I don't think is exactly what Joseph Conrad was saying. <laughs> It was just this like tremendous pessimism, and that literally belief in anything There's nothing worse than believing in progress or human goodness or mm. you know, the ability to make things better. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting seeing a sort of an anti, anti religious book mm-hmm. that I felt made the same mistakes, just sneering at atheists. And I thought, okay, maybe atheists do need some some sneering at in the present day although to be honest they had centuries where they were yes you know they literally couldn't even say you're an atheist yeah 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 i the mean fear you know, of something awful happening
1: i honestly get that instinctive sort of there's a part of me that's just like no you know what like they killed, tortured, you yeah. know, assassinated and silenced us for over a millennium. So if Dawkins wants to come out and slag them off in his book, let him go it's, ahead and do it. I know you
0: yeah, I know that also annoys me. It's just like, yeah, finally, you know, finally a moment arrives in human history, you know, where they can be real dicks. And um and, and and this is this is somehow kind of an atrocity, and then you get this you know again this bizarre situation where it was sort of like Kate Forbes was uh, was representing a kind of persecuted minority, and it's like oh yes. yeah. can't you even be a Christian in this country anymore? And it's like well you can be a bishop and you can sit in the House of Lords, <laughs> actually. I just found it so outrageous this idea that kind of you know Christianity was kind of on the back foot because of the march of atheism. You know, you try naming famous atheists outside of those, you know, mm-hmm. Four Horsemen and Ricky Gervais, you you don't get very far, and they're certainly not running the country. Yeah. So I feel that perhaps the understandable backlash against the new atheism has to be put in context.
1: Yes. Exactly. And that it would be nice to have a new, new atheism that might have learned from some of the things that went wrong back there, but still has that strength of conviction, but more of a desire to actually win an argument rather than placate its own sense of grievance.
0: Well, for me, what what made me an atheist? It was reading Camus because Mm -hmm. he was giving me a positive.
1: I'm not sure that's going to work for a lot of people, by the way. I'm not going to recommend that we just put Camus through people's (laughs) letterboxes.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Don't worry for kids program. No, but it was because he had a positivity. He was just like this. What's important is how we live now. You you cre- you need to sort of create your own morality. I didn't believe that idea that you know without religion there's no morality and everything just goes to, to pieces. Mm, obviously, I like That's the argument against honest. that. He goes, he goes. Well, that says something about what what you know religious people would do if they suddenly didn't believe in God. <laughs> You know, it's just like, wow, there's obviously some dark stuff that you have got in, you know, ready to go when you lose your belief. You know, I, I, I still try and be and, and be very moral without, without God. Can I end on a, on a quote from a man, Ingersoll? Please do. Okay, I love this. It says, while I'm opposed to all orthodox creeds, I have a creed myself, and my creed is this. Happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. The way to be happy is to make others so. This creed is somewhat short, but it is long enough for this life, strong enough for this world. If there is another world, when we get there, we can make another creed. Before we go, I want to say thank you to more of our Patreon subscribers and give a shout out to the following legends, Kiara Minnett, Caroline Herring, Alex Dennis, Jonathan Besant, And Jane Roberts, we could not make the series without your support. So thank you. To find out how you can get a shout out on the show, plus bonus episodes, origin story, merchandise and other benefits, click on the link in the show notes.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Origin Story. We will be back next week. In the meantime, you should be going to speak to your family and friends in frankly messianic, almost millennialist terms about how good this podcast is. And you should be doing as you will be doing in any good church or cathedral and getting your wallet out and putting lots and lots of money in the bucket that is being passed around in the form of a patron subscription. Uh, So if you could do either of those two things, we would be very, very grateful and you will find completion in your next life.
0: And if you have any thoughts on this episode or ideas for future episodes, you could let us know on the Patreon page. You can tweet us, email us, whatever. And next week, we will be doing a subject which has inspired uh, many people to think about, um, (laughs) about God and the end of the world and the meaning of it all, nuclear weapons. We'll see you then. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The producer was Liam Tate, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.